I don't know about you guys, but I kind of like Pat's voice. <laughs> I was, uh, there's one thing I've learned in studying preaching over the years is that a, a good preaching voice goes a long way. And, uh, and so maybe Pat's deep baritone will move mightily on the continent of Africa. I could feel, I could feel his presence through the subwoofers. I liked it. If I were to ask you, what does it look like to walk by faith? You use that phrase a lot. What does it look like to walk by faith? What would you say? How, how, would, you, how would you describe it? What would a life walking by faith look like? I, I, and I mean, I, I want to get down to the, to the nitty-gritty, okay? What would the day-to-day, the moment-by-moment look like? Well, as, as, as we discussed a few weeks ago, as, as I began preaching through the book of Joshua, walking by faith in light of who God is and what God has done is one of the main themes of the book. Let's go ahead and turn there to the, to the book of, of Joshua in chapter 1. And we find that God, as we discussed a few weeks ago, was fulfilling His long-awaited promise of bringing the Israelites into the promised land, and He was calling on Joshua to lead them there. Interesting enough, Joshua didn't know any of the obstacles that would be before him. Joshua didn't know every detail of what leading God's people to the promised land would entail. God didn't give Joshua a, a, an explicit five-year plan of, of what each season would look like or each enemy would look like or, or each time that he was going to need to walk by faith would look like. Yet, while Joshua lacked explicit information about the future, God was calling Joshua and all of the Israelites to be strong and courageous. However, God wasn't calling Joshua to consider his own personal gifts, talents, abilities, and to think positively about himself. He wasn't calling Joshua to, to trust in his past training from his his former mentor Moses. God was calling Joshua to find strength and courage in one place alone, and that was finding his refuge in God. And as God called Joshua to a life of courageous strength, we see from last time that he gave Joshua everything he needed to walk by faith by revealing truths about himself to Joshua. So in light of God revealing His holiness, His plan, His providence, and His promised presence to Joshua, as we talked about last week, or two weeks ago rather, God was calling Joshua to have strength and courage in light of those truths. This strength and courage that Joshua was to have was an internal confidence in God's plan and in God's character. He didn't need to fear anything that awaited him because Yahweh was on his side. Amen. In large part, in large part, this is what walking by faith looks like in the Christian life. We walk in confidence and strength in light of who God is. We don't need to walk around defeated. We don't need to walk around anxious. We don't need to walk around apathetic in this world at all. In light of who our God is, what He has done, and what He will do, we can walk around with true everlasting joy even in the most difficult of seasons. However, friends, faith isn't simply an internal disposition. The Bible never describes faith as as simply an internal feeling. If we're not careful, we might think that faith is primarily 
only affirming a certain set of information about God. You might think that faith is simply sitting around and thinking positive thoughts about God. While faith absolutely, hear me, involves our internal disposition, while faith does involve an understanding of truths about God, while faith does involve meditating on God, faith is far more than simply an invisible internal posture. The writer of Hebrews says it well in Hebrews 11.1 when he wrote, "Now, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here we see that faith absolutely involves an internal confidence and an internal strength. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he says assurance. Faith involves steadfast confidence in God and his ability to execute his sovereign plan for his church. However, we also see that faith involves conviction. It describes how we live in light of our assurance. In other words, biblical faith is a true confidence in God, hear me, that changes everything about us. It's faith. It has been said many times by theologians, faith isn't simply believing in God. Instead, faith is believing God. We believe He is who He says He is. We believe He has done what He said He would do. We believe He will do what He has promised. And this belief isn't just primarily, friends, intellectual. It involves the whole heart and the whole being. It is finding our hope, our joy, our sustenance, our treasure, literally our everything, friends, in Christ Jesus. As C.S. Lewis said, He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. Friends, biblical, God-honoring, saving faith realizes that Jesus is truly all that we need and such truths change our lives. And so when God was calling Joshua to a life of strength and courage, this is what God was calling Joshua to. The type of strength and courage that would change his life. This morning, we will, we will continue where we left off a few weeks ago in, in Joshua 1, 7 through 9. We will see that the type of strength and courage that Joshua was to have in Yahweh would be for the purpose of obedience and conformity to the Word of God. I'll say that again. And we will see that the type of strength and courage that Joshua was to have in Yahweh would be for the purpose of obedience and conformity to the Word of God. Of God in the land. My main point is this this morning for us. When our confidence truly is found in God, we will seek Him in His Word. Very simple. When our confidence is truly found in God, we will seek Him in His Word. So this morning, open your Bibles. Let's read the passage of Scripture I'll be preaching on this morning. It'll be Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9. God tells Joshua, And he tells us, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As God was calling Joshua to a life of strength and courage, friends, he wasn't just calling for a general sense of confidence in whatever he would do in his life. It's important to understand that. There are Few books in the Bible that people tend to take screaming out of context, like the book of Joshua. People will say things like, God wants you to have strength and confidence 
and the way that you run your business. So have lofty goals and walk in confidence or have strength and courage as you go to the gym and do hard things. Or we need to be strong and courageous on the baseball field. Generally speaking, anything that is difficult or challenging, people often pull the many calls to be strong and courageous in the book of Joshua, and they pull it into all these other contexts. And, and sure, we should be strong and courageous in every area of life, but not for the purpose of growing our barns or athletic performance on the baseball field. I want us to understand that there is a specific context that God has for Joshua walking in strength and courage. There's a specific context. The type of courage that Joshua was to exhibit didn't involve quarterly sales goals, fitness goals, ball field performance, political ambitions, legal troubles, family drama, or any other sort of desire that the rest of the world has that doesn't follow God. In fact, God's call for Joshua to have strength and courage wasn't just a call for Joshua to simply let go and let God. God's will for Joshua wasn't a life of peaceful passivity in light of who God was. Quite the opposite. The strength and courage that God was calling Joshua to possess had the divine purpose of driving Joshua to actively pursue God in his word. That was the purpose. In other words, God wasn't saying, Joshua, in whatever you choose to do in life, have strength and courage. Instead, God was saying, Joshua... I have a specific, incredible plan for you and the nation of Israel, and it will require you to walk in my strength. So we might ask, what is the specific plan that God had for Joshua and the rest of the Israelites that required God-empowered strength and courage? Well, it is the same plan that God had for the Israelites as they were led by Moses that we find in Deuteronomy 7. Turn there if you like, but I'll tell you what it says. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God tells the Israelites, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. You see, God's will for his covenant people, Israel, was that they would be holy, And set apart from every nation in the world. In other words, the nation of Israel was to be distinct. And what would make them distinct from the rest of the world, it it wasn't their, their looks, it wasn't their political prowess, their brute strength, or their impressive wealth. Instead, They were first and foremost called to be distinct in that they were to be the only people on earth whose lives and character and hearts and decisions reflected the character of God. So, how are the Israelites to fulfill this calling? By submitting their lives to the Scriptures. Submitting their lives to the Scriptures. Now, it was easy For the Israelites, and it's it's easy for us even to to think that they were Scripture people. We're Scripture people. They tended to think much of their lofty opinions about God's Word, but often as we read through the Old Testament, their lives said otherwise. The same could be said about the Pharisees in the New Testament. They proclaimed that they were Scripture people, but they were the wrong kind of Scripture people. They were legalistic, self-righteous people whose opinions added to and stood in judgment of the Scriptures. We, as a community Bible church, we've got the word Bible in our name. It can be easy to assume because you go to a Bible church that you're a biblical Scripture person. But today, God calls us clearly to be Scripture people. Like Joshua, He calls us to approach the Scriptures a certain way. So I want to look at four heart pots Four heart postures we should have as we approach the Scriptures this morning. Four heart postures. If we're going to be Scripture people, we're going to walk by faith, according to the Word of God, we'll look at four heart postures, I believe, that are brought out here in Joshua 1, 7-9. through 
First, we must approach the scriptures with the intent of obeying. We must approach the scriptures with the intent of obeying. If you were to go into the glove compartment of my trunk, you would find the owner's manual still wrapped in plastic like the day I received it. Now, I know that the inside, that inside the, the owner's manual of, of my truck has a lot of valuable and useful information about my car. In fact, everything I would ever need to know about the car is found in that book. And, and I'm confidently, I can confidently say that, that I'm glad that I have that owner's manual in case I ever needed it. I don't know what I would do with it, but I'm glad that I have it. However, I've never actually felt any sort of conviction that I actually need that owner's manual. In a way, many of us treat the Bible the same way. We might proclaim with our mouths that the Word of God is important. However, we might think it's mainly technical information that might be nice to know, but quite honestly, not all that necessary. Therefore, we often choose to not read the Bible at all, or we approach it the wrong way altogether. Perhaps we approach the scriptures like our favorite novel. We're we're looking for for new and, and interesting stories as we open the pages of scripture. Perhaps we might look at the Bible like a textbook and and our main goal is to master it and and intellectually understand everything that it is saying. However, while there's nothing wrong with being interested in the Bible or, or seeking to know more about the Bible, there is a heart posture that we must approach the Bible with every time we open its pages. We must approach the scriptures with the intent of obeying. This is exactly what the Lord tells Joshua in In verse 7, he tells Joshua to be careful to do according to all the law that Moses commanded Israel. Now, when we read God's words to Joshua here, we might be tempted to think that all didn't mean all. We might think that God would have been pleased with a fairly consistent commitment to the Scriptures. Yet, that isn't what God was calling Israel to. And it is fairly evident that this is the case based on really what we read in the first five books of the Old Testament. God was very serious and explicit about what he means here. For instance, in, in Leviticus chapter 10, we, we, we find the story of Nadab and Abihu. Rather than, rather than abiding by the law and how they were to worship in the tabernacle, they took it upon themselves to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. If you know the story, you know what happens. God consumed them in the moment, and they died. We might also consider a story we talked about a few weeks ago in in Numbers chapter 20. You might recall that Moses was angry with the Israelites because they were grumbling against the Lord again and again and again, this time because of a lack of water. But God graciously gives Moses simple directions as to how he would bring water to the people by simply commanding water to come out of the rock at Mirabah. But instead... Moses took matters into his own hands and improvised a bit by hitting the rock and chastising the Israelites. Therefore, God told Moses, Moses, you will not enter into the promised land. A final example we should consider is is found in Exodus chapter 32. The Lord had just given the Israelites the Ten Commandments which clearly commanded the Israelites not to have any gods other than Yahweh and not to make any carved idols. Yet in spite of God's clear commands in Exodus 32, as Moses ventures up the mountain to meet with God, the Israelites pollute themselves by making a golden calf. That day, the Lord judged Israel by killing 3,000 men and sending a massive plague among the Israelites. See, do, do, we, do we see God's standard of obedience and how seriously he took it? Do we see it? So that's, that's the backdrop to what he's calling, the way he's calling Joshua to obey. See, ignorance was no excuse to disobey God. Adding to God's commands or altering God's commands was not obedience. God was calling the Israelites into complete conformity to his word. 
Leviticus 19.2, it says it this way, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, to follow God's perfect law was to perfectly reflect the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God in the land. And so God was serious about obedience because God is serious about his own glory. As Christians today, friends, we must understand that obedience to to his word is God's will for us as well. This wasn't just something that he asked of Israel, it's something he commands of us. While we are no longer under the law, we are Christ's representatives here on earth. The church bears the image of its bridegroom. And walking by faith in this life looks like obeying the word of God as well. In fact, we see this all throughout the New Testament. Consider with me this morning, John 14, 23 and 24, where Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will keep my word. To love Jesus, keep my word. And my Father will love him, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you're tempted to think that obedience is just a little add-on or or a little icing on the cake in the Christian life, you couldn't be more incorrect, my friends. If being a Christian is, is putting your faith in Christ that involves having affection for our Savior, then Jesus says it is impossible to love him and not desire to obey him. James says something similar in James 1.22 when he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If you're tempted to think that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but, but have no desire to obey him, there's a chance, in, according to James 1.22, that, that you're deceiving yourself and that you have a, a dead faith. Not to belabor the point, But the Apostle John says as much in 1 John 2, 3 when he wrote, And by this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So what we've seen so far is that if you love Jesus, you will obey Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, you will obey Jesus. If you truly know Jesus, you will obey Jesus. In fact, that's what it means to be a disciple. Consider Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus calls the apostles there to to go out in the world and to make disciples. And what does he call them to do? One of the things he says is to call them to obey all that I've commanded. Now you might just say, Brian, you're you're laying it on a little thick and and you're making me feel a little little guilty this morning. I'm just concerned with knowing and loving Jesus. Everything else will will work itself out. Well, as, as pious as that might sound, friends, again, the Apostle John says, whoever says he abides in Jesus. So if you're, if you're the type of person who's going to abide in Jesus, John says, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's no such thing as pursuing Jesus or loving Jesus, or having faith in Jesus without following him. Amen. So, as we approach the Word of God, we don't come looking primarily, hear me, we don't come primarily for intellectual stimulation. It's not our primary motive. We open the book, we open the book praying for heart transformation. We're praying that the Holy Spirit would empower us to obey The word of God. We don't do this in our own strength, friends. We do it by the the power of the, the Spirit. We come with hearts that are eagerly and joyfully seeking to submit to what it says about God. Hear me? It's not just obeying actions and commands. It's conforming our hearts and our minds to doctrine about God. So when we, where we encounter sometimes difficult truths that the Bible reveals to us, we should come with hearts that desire not to twist the Word of God to our liking, but to mold our minds and our hearts to actually love who God really is and who He's revealed to be in the Scriptures. 
We should eagerly desire, as the Word of God is open, to submit to the doctrine that we read about God. But we also approach the Scriptures with hearts that long to obey what God calls us to do in His Word. We don't come to the Scriptures looking to obey the things that we're already naturally pretty good at. We don't approach the Scriptures buffet-style, picking and choosing where we might obey in our given season of life. Where our lives are out of conformity to God's will, we confess our sin to our gracious God and we repent. We, we step into the light. We live out who God has called us and, and empowered us to be. We join a church. We live out our Christian life together in the body of Christ. We open the Bible and we see Jesus' call to make disciples. So we, we pray for the strength and will to obey that glorious calling together. We see the calls to bear with one another, so we bear with one another. We see the calls to forgive, so we forgive. We see the calls to be anxious for nothing, so we seek to be anxious for nothing. And, and, it, and it could go on and on and on and on. And we do all of this by the power of the Spirit. Why? Because Christ is honored and glorified in the obedience of his church. Christ is pleased as his bride submits to his leadership through his word. We don't obey like my dog obeys now. Some of you guys have seen my dog. And he's really obedient now. We, we, we sent him to obedient school for two weeks. And, and the reason he's obedient is, is because the, the two, two reasons, because the trainer spent a lot of time with him. Second reason, in the trainer's time with him, he put like a little electric collar around his neck so that when the dog disobeyed, he, he gave him a little bit, don't judge me here, this makes some of you mad, but he gives him just a little bit of, little bit of shock, okay? Nothing crazy. I felt it. I had to do it. So it's nothing crazy, I promise, but it's enough to make him a little bit uncomfortable. And so every time he disobeys, he gets, he gets zapped. And so he's become very accustomed to, I don't want to get zapped, so I obey. That's not the Christian life. We, we, we're not obeying because we're afraid God's going to zap us. We, we, we obey. Our motive is God glorified. We are his people. He's empowered us to obey by the power of the Spirit. We can do it. It's a joyful submission to God. Not, some fear, not just some cowering in fear submission. You see, one crucial difference between ancient Israel and us is that we don't obey in order to receive God's blessings. We joyfully obey in light of the many ways God has blessed us in Christ Jesus. Point two, we must approach the scriptures with a desire for wisdom. We see this in verse seven. We must approach the scriptures with, with the desire for wisdom. And you see in verse seven, God tells Joshua to obey the law. Obey the law and do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. I, I want to zero in for a moment on this idea of, of having good success wherever they went, should they not depart from the law of the Lord. See, if you look at your Bible, go, go look at your Bibles. I don't, I don't know if it does this on a phone, but if, but if, if you look at your Bible, when you, when you look at the phrase, have good success, you'll likely find in, in the footnote that, that it says literally, act wisely. If, that, if it says in your Bible, it says it in mine. And when you dig into the meaning of this phrase, you'll see that the meaning of the phrase involves living with, with understanding. So you might, you might ask, oh, Brian, which is it? is it? Is it have good success? Is it act wisely? Or is it live with understanding? Which, which one is it? And, and honestly, all three phrases are a good representation of, of what the Hebrew is representing. For instance, what is wisdom? Wisdom is, is being able to discern right and wrong, good and bad. It is able to differentiate between good, better, and, and best. It has insight into the very best things and pursues them while rejecting the right things as well. And so as we open the word of God, we find that our creator has spoken and defined what true wisdom, true success looks like. Therefore, we have everything in this book, friends. We have everything in this book for success in life. We have everything in this book to truly live the good life according to the one who gives life. 
We don't have to walk around in, in darkness hoping we've had good success in life. We don't have to define success on our own terms. God has given us his word as the one true source of wisdom in this world so that we can understand God's ways so that we can have a truly successful life on God's terms, not on our terms. See, God was reminding Joshua that true success came from living a life that honored him. The good life was, was not marked by possessions, fame, notoriety, but by fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. By telling Joshua not to depart from the, the word to the right or to the left, God was telling Joshua that his only true source of wisdom and definition of true success would be found in his word alone. See, God's word wasn't something that was meant to be a boring chore with no apparent benefit. It was meant to be something joyful, life-giving, and life-altering. God's intent was that when the Israelites meditated on the word of God, they would find something they could not find anywhere else in the world. Insight into God, his plan, and his character. While we tend to have a negative view of the law, typically that's how we speak about the law, Scripture only points to it as beautiful, as wise, and as good. For instance, in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, we see this. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see it? But the law's the law's good. It wasn't. It wasn't just. It wasn't this like awful thing that we tend to think of it. It was meant to be wisdom. And even those, even those who rejected Yahweh would see it and recognize oh, there's something good about that. See, it was God's plan to bring Himself glory by demonstrating His wisdom and character through the Israelites as they built their lives on the foundation of the Word of God. Their lives weren't marked by a keen understanding of the cultures around them. The newest and greatest research, diversity of thought, economic prowess, worldview tolerance, political expertise, or military conquest. Their lives were to be marked by the presence of God in their lives as they submitted to his word. We also read in Psalm 119, 105 through 112, which looking for a great long psalm to meditate on over the next few weeks um, that we sang about this morning perfectly. It's, it's Psalm 119. And in, in, in a few of those verses, we read this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes for, forever to the end. You see, do you see where the psalmist of 119 finds his wisdom, friends? In the midst of a dark and sinful world, the word of God gives light so that we can walk faithfully with God. In the midst of suffering and affliction, we can find life in God's word. In the midst of doubt, distraction, and insecurity, God's word directs us to the only true source of providence, God himself. In the midst of persecution, the one place to look for a fortress is the word of God as it points us to our true fortress, God himself. You see, Psalm 119 is full of hundreds of reasons, friends, to cherish the word of God. This was God's will for his covenant people to find their wisdom in his word and not to depart from it. 
This is also God's plan for his covenant people today. For instance, we often quote 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 that says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from where you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. See, I know we reference this verse all the time from the pulpit. But can we, for just one moment, glory in the reality of the truth that is presented in this, these verses? You see, the God who created the heavens and the earth, who spoke that giant ball of fire in the sky, millions of miles away, burning, keeping this whole earth warm so that we can live, and illuminating it from the darkness who sustains all of creation simply by willing it, who who rules and reigns on the throne with no equal or no threat, who sovereignly accomplishes all that he pleases, he has given us a book. He has breathed out words, sentences, chapters, and books for his covenant people. You see, he could have remained silent He could have kept us in the dark, but he didn't. And so whenever we open the word of God, the one true and living God, he is speaking to us. And in this book, what we find are words of life. Literally, the word of God is able to make us wise for salvation as it points us to Christ Jesus and our need to surrender our lives to him. However, the book isn't just a book that tells us how to get saved. In it, God has provided everything we need to have a truly successful life. In it, God has provided wisdom for us to glean from and obey straight from the throne of God Almighty. Friends, there is nothing in the world like this book. Nothing. So I must ask, I must ask, when you consider your life, Is the word of God your wisdom? Is the word of God your wisdom? You see, when life is hard and things are chaotic, where do you turn? Where do you turn? Do you turn to the wisdom of Instagram influencers? Do you you head to your echo chamber to hear everything that you want to hear? Do you surround yourself with people who will affirm your every decision, every emotion, every thought pattern? Do you read secular self-help books in order to try and improve your life? Do you gather as many memes that affirm your already baked and preconceived notions of what is right and wrong? See, friends, it can be so tempting to turn to such avenues of supposed wisdom in this life. This is certainly where the world turns. However, we must understand that we can always find someone who will affirm even our most outlandish and foolish thoughts. You will always be able to find someone to affirm you in your ignorance. So will I. And so just because we can find a few people to agree with us doesn't make us wise, doesn't make us right, doesn't mean we have truly sought wise counsel. Yet, the one place, Christians, we must turn is the Word of God. For when we open its pages, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible also reads us. See, in Hebrews 4, 12, it says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we approach the Bible seeking, as we approach the Bible seeking wisdom, it exposes our folly, our selfishness, our lack of love for the Lord, where our hope truly is. It shows us how just self-reliant we can be. In other words, it pierces our heart. And this is exactly what most of us need. 
When we open the word of God, we see that our biggest problems in life aren't financial, aren't religious, aren't political, aren't relationship-driven or familial. Our biggest threats aren't CRT, wokeism, progressive agendas, vaccines, Supreme Courts, non-organic food, diets, fads, or anything else we seem to fixate on. When we come to the Bible, we see that almost always in life, our biggest problem, my biggest problem, is my own heart. That's what I read. How often do we acknowledge that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, but then we give our hearts, emotions, and thoughts way too much credit when we're trying to walk wisely in this world as if they are somehow supremely wise. Instead, God offers us his word that convicts us, encourages us, leads us, and gives us life as we seek to walk by faith in this life. So as we approach the word of God, we approach it seeking to obey. As we approach the word of God, we, we approach it with the desire for wisdom. Point three, we must pursue the scriptures with diligence. We must pursue the scriptures with, with diligence. Friends, how would the Israelites obey God's word and find the word of God as their constant source of wisdom in this life? Well, God told Joshua to not let the word of God depart from his mouth, but to meditate, it, meditate on it day and night. See, God's purposes for the Israelites, it wasn't to see the word of God as a booster shot when they need a little, they need a little booster shot. Life's getting hard. It's, a, it's just give you a little booster shot. Instead, God was calling for the Israelites to depend on the word of God like they depend on their next meal. This is what you kids heard at Snowbird. What Stephen talked about a few weeks ago, depend on the word of God like they depend on their meal. In a world of endless distractions, if there was one thing they were to fixate their minds on, it was to be the word of the Lord. You see, pursuit of the knowledge of the word of God was to characterize their lives. It was to be present among their conversations. It was to be the center of their homes. In intentional times of discipleship and spontaneous times of discipleship, the word of God would be proclaimed among the people of God. God's plan for the Israelites was to be like the man in, in Psalm 1 who rejected the sinful philosophies of the world and meditated day and night on the law of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, through 9, the Lord God tells Israel, All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You see, friends, do, do we see God's call to his people here? If there was a word that I would underline in Deuteronomy 6, it would be the word diligently. It would be the word diligently. Of course, that's how I would also describe the man in Psalm 1, diligent. It also describes the type of man God was calling Joshua to be and the people of Israel to be. They would diligently pursue the word of God. If he was to obey it, he had to know it. If he was to know it, he had to diligently study it and meditate on it. Friends, there's, there's no shortcuts. It simply took diligence. You see, that wasn't supposed to just characterize the Israelites in Joshua's time. In Acts 2.42, we see that those who came to know Christ as their Savior, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. You see this? These early Christians, they were devoted. They were devoted to knowing the Word of God. We also see Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, when, when we see these descriptions of devoted in Acts 2.42 and the call to do your best in 2 Timothy 2.15, we have to admit that these are more than simple heart postures. You see that? They're more than, they're more than heart postures. They're heart, they're heart postures that ultimately lead to action. These Christians actually took intentional time, intentional time to study the scriptures. So friends, I, I must ask this morning, 
Do you feel like your life is characterized by diligence to know God through the Scriptures? Does that characterize your life? Teenagers, college students, single, married, parents, does, that, does it characterize your life to pursue the Word of God with diligence? Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting a certain strategy here this morning, or even a certain amount of time that you should spend in the Scriptures. I'm not burdening you with that this morning. I do suppose that the amount of time you spend in the Scriptures will probably look different for every season of, of life. However, friends, it, it is vital to know that in order to be discipled and formed by the Word, we must actually study it. We must actually meditate on it. And we must actually feast on it. And this does take time. It does take time. And it's all the more important to consider as we think about all the many ways in which we are being discipled in the ways of this world constantly. If you are not being discipled by the Word of God, you are being discipled by something. You see, we might think that Instagram, Facebook, Fox News, books, commercials, influencers, sports, our jobs, our hobbies, etc. are all just neutral in relation to God. We buy the myth of neutrality. In all reality, we are being shaped and formed by such things and people constantly. What I'm not calling for is for us all to become monks and remove ourselves from all potential outside influences. It's not our that's not the call. I'm simply saying for Christians, the scriptures should be our primary influence in life. They should be. Simple statement, simple concept, I know, but I'm asking, is it in your life? That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking you to affirm the statement. I'm asking, is it true of you? See, for, for this to happen, it will take diligence. And for some, not all, Maybe not even most. It might require a lifestyle change. But I'll let the Holy Spirit work on your heart in that area. Point four. We must approach the Scriptures knowing where our hope is found. We must approach the Scriptures knowing where our hope is found. See, as God called the Israelites for the Word of God to be the foundation of their lives, this was not meant to be some begrudging call for them. There was meant to be great joy as they meditated on and obeyed the scriptures because, what we read, it would result in a prosperous and a successful life. See, something, something unique in this point in Israel's history is that the Lord would give them peace from their physical enemies. He would fill their barns and, and give them actual physical prosperity if they followed the Lord their God. He says that over and over. However, we know all throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites never, ever perfectly obeyed God as a nation. There was always a remnant who followed Yahweh, but because of the nation's continued disobedience, they never actually saw the ongoing peace and prosperity God offered them. In fact, if there was one thing that the law continually taught them, is that they would never, ever meet God's righteous standard. Never would. If they were to have any hope, it would be in one who could meet God's righteous standard on their behalf. Over hundreds of years, as the prophets spoke to the Israelites, they would know that God would send a future Messiah to obey the law on their behalf. Take the wrath of God that they deserve and earn God's favor and blessings on their behalf. Their hope and their joy was in the one to come. Ultimately, the Bible reveals to us that that person, friends, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He did what we could never do. He did what Israel could never do. And our joy and our hope is in Christ alone. Our treasure is in Jesus Christ alone. So when we open the scriptures, we are open, opening the scriptures, looking to see and know our treasure, Jesus Christ. Our prosperity is Jesus. Our good success is knowing Jesus. 
Our reward is Jesus. And because of what Jesus did, yes, he will one day remove us from this vile life filled with sin and bring us into his presence. And we will live with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But know this. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward. And so in light of this, in light of what we've seen in these first, nine, these first eight verses in Joshua, we see this, we, we, we get a picture of who God is, we get a picture of his character, what he's done, we see his sovereignty. We see his providence. And then we, in light of that, we say, hey, God's given us his word to walk by. So God tells, God tells Joshua this, have I not commanded you? Have I not commanded you? God isn't suggesting. I mean, of course, we'd all say, I would like to walk in strength and courage. Like, you know, when you saw me up here, like boohooing two weeks ago with anxiety, like, I don't, I don't want that. I mean, I, of course, I'd all say, I want to walk in strength and courage. I want to be confident. But God isn't saying, choose confidence. You, you can choose confidence if you'd like. You, you can choose strength if you'd like. Just, just a suggestion. God says this, Joshua, I'm commanding you. Walk in strength and courage. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why does he need that? Because he's going to encounter nations where their worldview, their way of life is completely contrary to the word of God. I mean, you see, don't you see this all throughout the Old Testament that, that, that pagans are just absolutely threatened by God so that they want, to, they want to kill God's people, they want to persecute God's people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's going to take a great deal of strength and courage to trust in God, to obey his word in the midst of the land. And it's really not any different for us Christians. If we're going to be a people of the book and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of this world, in the midst of all the temptations that are around us, all the opportunities that are around us, all the different competing worldviews and, 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 and the amount of persecution that the church is facing worldwide, and we're starting to face a lot more here. Dear friends, it will take strength and courage to walk according to the word of God. It will. But we can. Not because we're good enough, not because we're strong enough, but our God is sovereign. And he has empowered us to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our Savior, who we worship, through which we have been reconciled to God, they killed him. And he rose again. He defeated death. That is our God. And so, friends, I, I don't care what worldviews out there. We don't need to be threatened by all this junk. We don't need to be distracted by all this junk. Jesus reigns. He reigns supreme. And so let us, genuinely, if the Bible is calling us, to walk in strength and courage. In all sincerity, let's, let's pray for that in our hearts as we leave. God, give me strength and courage. Let me obey that. Let me, let, let me desire that. Not to grow my business, not to achieve my earthly goals, but to live and walk in a way that honors you because you're good. Amen? Amen.